Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the gift that we have to be able to come together and to glory in your great mercy to us in Christ. And we pray that this morning as we go through this next chapter in Leviticus that you would be once again gracious to us through your Spirit that you would give us hearts that are receptive to what you would say to us this morning. We often feel, um, I think, stunned by the events of the world. But Father, I hope that we take great comfort in the certainty that we have of our hope in you. Would you help our hearts to rest there? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we are uh, in Leviticus 17. We have finished up a few weeks on the, the Day of Atonement in chapter 16, and we're moving on to, uh, to a new code. Let me read it for you real quickly. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, and to all the people of Israel, and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp, or kills it outside the camp, and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people." This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices, that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And you shall say to them, Any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people." If any one of the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Anyone also of the people of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten, shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is in its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature, 
For the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. It seems like we've seen all this before, right? We've seen a lot of these themes before. We, we see in this chapter, again, the proper place for sacrifice, the proper use for blood, the importance of addressing ritual impurity. It's kind of a summation, it seems, of a lot of the stuff we've gone over. Uh, and the application of these laws to resident aliens. But we also see something a little different. We see a prohibition against pagan cultic practices. And so in this chapter, we see kind of a bridge between chapters 1 through 16, which are a lot of procedure, a lot of ritual, moving into what's known as the Holiness Code. What do you think is the subject of the Holiness Code? Just a, just a thought. Nobody will know. Nobody will know, I promise. What do you think? What what could be the topic at issue in the holiness code? Reading some of the pericopes of the next chapters and it's holiness? Could be holiness. Could be holiness. What is holiness? We've studied this before. What when when the Hebrews use the term holiness, it's a it's it's a word that means something set apart, distinct, um, unique, something that's uncommon. For the Israelite and for us, the grounding of holiness, what it's rooted in, is the holiness of God. Uh, we'll see this in chapter 19. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. God is holy other, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy other, and like Him, Israel is to be separate and distinct from the nations around them. And so we, we've seen it in the Purity Code, the Cleanliness Code, uh, this ritual distinctiveness and now we're going to see it in a moral distinctiveness. There are a lot of laws that deal with um, their moral code of Israel coming up. All right. It begins with Yahweh again speaking to Moses. What does that tell you? I, the Lord, say this. Where do these laws come from? God is speaking them. Where do they originate? Are these man-made? Are they from God? Obviously, it's from God, right? So that gives, that gives a, a, a root into what's going on. Um, to whom are they given? The, Leviticus 16 was to the priests, right? This Who's, is also to the priests. It's to Aaron. It's to Aaron and the, and the priests. And who else? All the people of Israel. In fact, when it begins, the command begins, it says, any man, the Hebrew there is man-man. What do we know about repeating words in Hebrew? There's emphasis involved. 
And so when it says man, man, it means everybody. This applies to, to every, I mean, there's no exception to this rule. And it's about, uh, it's about to get real. Because what he's dealing with is, um, is very personal to us. I, I, I crock-potted a whole chicken this week. I was so excited. And it, a whole chicken. It was wonderful. No, no. That one got taken away by the hawk. The one I had my eye on, got to, uh, we lost him. But it was okay. It's okay. We're not grieving too, too badly about that, that particular rooster. Um, he served as a football force for many, many years. Um, the first law, what does it say? If any man, if any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp, what is he talking about here? Is this an argument to be a vegetarian in the camp of Israel? Is that what he's saying? Every time you want to, you want to kill an animal, it's got to be a sacrifice. Is that what he's saying? No, it's more protection against the blood. There's a right way to do it. Okay. It, it, it seems to be no one is allowed to kill a cow lamb or goat anywhere except at the altar of burnt offering on the courtyard of the tabernacle, right? So every animal that they kill that's one of these sacrificial animals has to be killed there. Is that, is that, is that for all time? If you're going to do a lamb, a goat, a cow... You can't do it outside. You've got to do it at the altar is basically what it's saying. I guess, my, I guess to be more clear on the question, to eat meat, do you need to slaughter it at the tabernacle? Is that the idea here? Some have made that argument. Do we know anywhere else where it talks about eating meat that's not sacrificed, that's eating sacrificial animals normally that would be it's a minor point. I'm dwelling too far, too much on it. No, that's not what it's saying. The whole context of this thing is sacrifice. It's dealing with the ritual of um, killing an animal for sacrifice. No one is allowed to kill these animals for sacrifice, um, but at the central location of the tabernacle. Why is that an issue? Do we know? Does it say anywhere in the passage why this is an issue? What's going on? Offering them to goat demons. Even now, there's some there's some indication that people are going outside the camp in the wilderness and sacrificing animals to other gods, to other claimed deities. Um, what what uh, what are they thinking? I mean, hadn't we done the golden calf thing already? The classic take God's commandment and take it out of context and pervert it. What, what, does this seem odd to you that they would do this? I mean, because they're still sacrificing. Right. The doing it in a long way to the body. And in the ancient world, they oftentimes thought that... Um, this God over here was the God for this area, mm -hmm. and this God over here was the God for this area. 
And you see that like with Egyptians and sure. Babylonians back to Israel. So the pervasive idea of the day is that there's a there there's a whole roster, like a good football team, of gods. And each one has its place, each one serves its function, and you want to keep them all happy so that you can have your best life now. Right? Naturally, if they're outside the camp, that's not covered by this God. Why does Yahweh care? It's outside the camp, right? Um, they're hedging their bets. We've got to travel through the wilderness, we've got to make sure the goat demons are happy, you know. This seem odd to you. No. It does... Well, it does from the standpoint that we don't sacrifice to goat demons. But remember that the polytheism of the day is a cultural assumption, much like materialism is in our day. It's hard to kick it. It's hard to discern where it's creeping up. They probably thought that they were doing fine with Yahweh. And, and this is probably honoring Him too if we're making peace here. That way He doesn't have to fight this one. Or something. Who knows what's going on in their head. But it's a cultural assumption. And it's sometimes it, it's not detected. It's not discerned. This is bad. Don't do this. Until the word comes. Right? Alright. He confines the worship to Yahweh. They've been making sacrifices to goat gods or demons of the wilderness. The, the purpose of this, he says... Um, it helps to centralize the worship of the Hebrews. The, the sacrifice system among them had been this kind of freewheeling deal outside the confines of the camp and the open field, and there was no priestly oversight. And so bringing it in at the tabernacle accomplishes a purpose, which is there is oversight by the priesthood of how these sacrifices are made and what's going on, and it curtails this, I'm, I'm making sacrifices to other gods thing. It's a, it's a restriction uh, for them to do that. There's only one true altar. No private altars are to be permitted. This didn't stop here, by the way. Uh, in Chronicles, Second Chronicles, Jeroboam appointed his own priests for the high places, which were obviously outside of the temple, the tabernacle, uh, the temple complex, for the high places and for the goat idols and for the calves that he had made. Again, they're doing the same language, the same word is being used here of the, of the time of the kings as what's being dealt with here in, in Leviticus. It, doesn't, it, doesn't, it didn't change. In what would this law be grounded? If you're thinking from God's moral code, the ten testimonies to His nature, where would this be grounded? You shall have no other gods before me. It's one of the things we're going to see in the Holiness Code a lot is it, there's the grounding in the Ten Commandments. And it starts here with this issue of blood, of sacrificing an animal outside the camp apart from where it's supposed to be, and then it goes into, um, it goes into blood. All right, my, my notes here. Uh, Polytheism was deeply embedded in their culture. It was like the air they breathed. It was like materialism in our culture, extremely difficult to even realize its influence. And they were slow to turn from it, even after deciding to follow Yahweh. I had a... I'm doing a one-to-one -one with a... And I told some of you about this on Wednesday. I'm doing a one-to-one -one with a guy who's not 
part of something. He's a friend of mine from long ago and kind of a mentor type guy. And we're going through James, count it all joy when you find yourself in various trials and all that. And so I asked him, what's joy? What is that? What does that look like? How do you know you have it? What, what is that? And he, I think, brought out the point that, that kind of feeds into this. Our concept of what is joy is shaped by our culture, our goat gods. <laughs> we assume joy related to stuff or or. Or, 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 you know, security and, and politicians and whatever who are loud. And we, we have this kind of idea that if we have that, we'll be safe and we can be joyful. Um, for them, joy is we, we make all the gods happy and we, you know. But he started telling me, this is really our, our concept of joy needs to be formed by the relationship that we have with God. That's certain. That's key. And apart from that, we, we grasp for all these other things to make ourselves feel, feel again, feel joyful. There's the, the feeling that's, that's um, so paramount in our culture. Being, um, being rooted in God is, is the grounding for joy. Um, it's outside the camp. Why did he care? He does care. So much so that he likens this goat God sacrificing to to what what does he liken it to prostitution, prostitution. they go whoring after other gods I mean, it's pretty strong language we don't say that on sunday morning in church why would he do that that's a little extreme don't you think what goes on in these kind of cultic rituals why do they do them what do we know so far First of all, they don't think God is enough. Contentment issue, which is the grounding or, or the root of a lot of adultery stuff. So what else? Part of the culture in the world around them. Part of the culture in the world around them. In these rituals, they do these sacrifices to guard or to um, encourage the benefits of fertility, both uh, with their, their wives... Uh, with their crops, with their, their, their goats and their, and their sheep and their cows. The, the fertility, so the rituals mimic what they're going for. And it involves temple prostitution and those kinds of things. And so it's very applicable here. Doing these kinds of things is adultery against Yahweh. And this is the language that he uses throughout Scripture of buying into the worship of a false god. It's, it's the prostitution idea, the adultery idea. You shall have no other gods before me. This law serves to hold Israel to a rigid monotheism. All right. Just to ethnic Hebrews, that's all this applies to. Yes? What do we see? Also applies to... People passing through, resident aliens. I make this in passing. Don't pick up any political commentary here. But in Israel, unless you want to, in Israel, to live among the people and not be part of the nation, you still had to assimilate the culture. You couldn't have a bubble 
where I'm proud of my own culture and I want to be in my own culture in the midst of Israel. I've got my own courts, my own rules, my own thing. You can't touch me. This is a safe place. Keep your military out of here. They didn't have that. You come here, you're assimilated here. We worship Yahweh and this is the way we do it. And if you don't, what happens? Whether you're ethnic Hebrew or a resident alien, what happens? Cut them off. What does that mean? Outcast. outcast. Go be with your goat demon. You know, They're outcast. Um, that could indicate a premature death. Most likely it means just excommunicated and put outside the camp and, and away from the people. All right. Notice, too, that in, in verses 8 and 9, the command here expands to all the sacrifices, not just peace offerings. So it's, it's a completely uh, covered thing of all of, the, all of the sacrifices. All right, look at verse 10. What's going on here? It's a prohibition against consuming animal blood. That sounds somewhat disgusting. Um, it applies to natives and to foreigners. Why would this need to be here? Well, culturally, this is a common practice. Raw meat with the blood in it was kind of a pagan cultic thing. Think of uh, Last of the Mohicans and eating the heart of the deer. You know, it was kind of a it was kind of a, a pagan thing. Um, it's not to be so in Israel. What's the reason given? Why, why would he forbid them eating and drinking animal blood? I mean, that's every hunter's dream to you know <laughs> conquer the thing and they are to be set apart. They're to be set apart. Um, and that would that would put them that would assimilate them into the culture around them rather than being God's people. If you're going to go hunting with the Moabites, hey, let's all eat a heart together. You know, whatever. They're distinct. They're different. What are the so there's a, there's the holiness issue? They're set apart. What else? What is it about the blood that he points to that is so important? It's been given for a purpose. It's been given for a purpose, and what's the purpose? What does it say? To make atonement for your soul. To make it's the blood that makes atonement by and alive. It's atonement. Who gives it? God does. God does. He gives it. So what does that mean? If, if it's His to give, what does that mean? What does that tell us about God? Who is sovereign over the means of life? Right? If it's mine to give, it means I control it first. It's my gift to you, He says. First, blood is the source and animating force of life, so it's to be honored and respected as the element that contains life in it. They are under the service of, they're worshiping, they're living under the rule of a king. And it's his stuff. It's his to give. And their misuse of it, well, it's treasonous. It's a misuse of his stuff. It's to be honored and respected as the element that contains life. Second, God has set animal blood apart to atone for human sin. It is sacred and substitutionary and therefore not to be consumed 
in a common way. Its use is limited in the way that the king says it's to be limited, as atonement, as sacrifice, used to cover them. Now, as to this, we see a little bit more um, heat in the judgment. (laughs) The first thing, we see if they're sacrificing outside the camp, it says they shall be put out. How is it termed here? What does it say? Set my face against them. Okay. What is that compared to? Do you remember the priestly blessing? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. The, the penalty here is the exact opposite of the blessing. It's a picture of God's turning, uh, turning His face not in blessing, but in judgment toward the person that does this thing, that disrespects the means of atonement for the people. Um, And what else does it say? Who's going to set them out? Not only does he set his face against them, but he makes sure that they are cut off from their people. It's, I will cut them off. It's not, they shall be. I will. It's even more emphatic about how serious this is. And that includes uh, wild game hunted for food. The basic prohibition remains the same. The blood must not be consumed, and that's emphatically repeated here. The hunter is to drain it off and then cover it with dirt. Again, the issue is, all of life is the Lord's. I have given it for you. He can determine how it is to be used because He is sovereign over life. He's provided it for a very specific purpose, atonement. To use blood for any other purpose is to deny the Lord's sovereign ownership of it. All right. What's going on in 15 and 16? This seems like an odd add-on. What happens here? Haven't we seen this already? Didn't we have a chapter 11 or 12 or something in oh, 11 in where it talked about don't touch a carcass? <clears throat> Now he's talking about eating them. If you touch it, you're unclean for a ways. But if you eat it, why is that even brought up here? What's going on? Someone else might bring you a dead carcass and you haven't touched it, but it's on your plate. It's on your plate. Oh, by the way, that you're, you're eating, I, I got that out of the field. I found a lion tore it and it's kind of a little ripe, but hey, we seasoned it up just right. What, what, why is that an issue here? Why, why would he put it here? What makes the animal unclean? The blood hasn't been drained. And in fact, if you've got an animal that's been sitting there for a while, you're not going to get the blood out. Something happens to blood over time. It kind of... Marbles, I guess. I don't know. What, what do you? It, it's a. It's a. Coagulates. Marbleizes better. Yeah. <laughs> Thank. I'm thanking God for that net from Peter that that Peter saw right now. So we have this idea here again of the blood. It's not just the carcass again, like we saw in Leviticus 11. It's the blood at issue, and that's what this chapter is all about. Animals who die like this will not have had their blood drained properly. Um, to eat or to neglect the rite of purification 
the, the, the person will remain in sin. It will be a deliberate disobedience, even though the punishment here is not specified. All right. What an odd way to begin a series of laws on holiness. You think? I mean, I would think he would go into um, don't drink, don't dance, don't chew, don't, you know, run with girls who do or whatever, however that goes. I mean, it would be a Baptist code. Why would he start here with don't, don't drink blood, don't sacrifice to, to goat gods out in the wilderness? Why would he start here? Why do you think? Maybe that's the way that the, the culture around them, that's the most prevalent way that they worship their God. So the beast, to be different, to be holy, set apart in how they worship their God, starts here. Well, how, how did they get this practice to begin with of the atonement? How, how, well, how does he characterize it? I, I gave it to you. I give it to you. At the core issue is God's grace, right? He's giving them a means of atonement. They understand, after having gone through 16 chapters, as I hope you understand after having gone through 16 chapters, that to, to not obey the law of God is treason against the king. And what happens when, when we used to believe in, in nations and borders and culture and, 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 so, uh, and, and national security and all that, treason had a certain penalty, didn't it? You weren't just pardoned at the end of a presidential term for treason. Something happened. You were killed for treason. Uh, and kings would kill those who were treasonous against the realm, who, who compromised its security, who compromised um, the integrity of the, of the realm. How much more the king of heaven? And so they understood this. And yet here we see God in His grace, in His mercy... Giving them, giving them a means of forgiveness, of atonement. The ones who commit a wrong have no right to demand they be forgiven. That decision belongs solely to the one who has been wronged. And so Jesus says to his disciples and to us for over two millennia, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The grounding for the holiness of Israel is the holiness of God. However, unless they are made clean for their sin, they cannot be set apart. The atonement is the cornerstone of that distinctiveness, that holiness. It has to happen first, and then they can strive to live holy lives before God. There are two aspects of this atonement. One is the aversion of God's punishing wrath. Uh, the $10 word is propitiation. He takes care of the wrath, averts it from having its effect on us. And the second part of it is the removal of sin, expiation. A substitute is killed on the altar to avert judgment. And a substitute is rejected and sent away bearing the sins of the people. Those are the two pictures of the, um, of the atonement. But after they're atoned for, they're not just free to do whatever they want. Okay, we got the thing in the center of the camp taken care of. We can go engage in this stuff on the outside of the camp. They're not allowed to do that. 
their consciences are still informed by their culture. Um, does that ring true to you? When you come to Christ, you're coming out of a mindset, right? And, and Paul talks about washing your head with the Word of God. Um, it's to, to train the mind to think rightly the reality of the kingdom that we're coming into. We're coming out of a culture that, that places value on other things. Goat gods and uh, materialism and um, guys who, who promise it to us. Um, unless they are made clean for their sin, they cannot be set apart. Israel, many Israelites, were placing importance on worshiping other gods so as not to offend them and hedge their bets. All right. Hebrews says it this way. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, to what effect? Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Notice the word he uses there. It's purify. It's an ongoing process. Bringing you out of one mindset, out of one culture, into another is not an immediate thing. It takes, uh, it takes work. It takes retraining. It takes thinking through. It takes reinforming the conscience as to what is right and what is wrong and living accordingly. What redemption is purifying is, is the conscience our discernment, the ability to understand the difference between right and wrong. Having been made righteous in Christ, we are being transformed to act rightly for Christ. The atonement is there, and then we're... That's why I think that this is here as a bridge to the holiness chapter. It starts with the grounding of, I've atoned for you, I bought you with a price, you're mine... Live this way. That's not unique to um, the New Testament. That's the way God has always worked. I am the God who called you out of Egypt. I've called you by name. You're mine. Live this way. I'm, I am king. You are under Live this way. Inform your consciences to how to live in the new kingdom. We're not our own. We're bought with a price. Like Israel, we are in an exclusive relationship with a holy God. He delivered us from great bondage, and we, like they, owe Him our very lives. He is our covenant King, and it is this King alone whom we serve. Just like He told the Israelites, He's telling us, honor His stuff. What's His stuff? All of us. We can't use it for what we want. We can't go outside the camp and act like He doesn't care. Because of what He's done for us in Jesus... Because we have come into Him, we're His completely. Honor His stuff. Use it the way that He has instructed us to use it. It's not ours anymore. In this chapter, it's life itself. 
and using blood only as the Lord has commanded. Since he owns everything, we're to use everything only as he has commanded. And we're going to see over the next few chapters what that means for Israel. There's a lot of, um, lot of laws on... Um, well, we get into some very interesting things in the next chapter that, that deal with us today uh, culturally, which we should have a, a fun discussion uh, on that. Um, but there are other things that are going on there. There, there, there are arguments against... Uh, certain cultic practices, how to be distinct, what you put your faith in, what do you trust in. These are all moral codes that we're seeing in the holiness code. But first, the grounding of that is the atonement. Um, all right. Finally, Israel will be reminded of the love and mercy of Yahweh. Breaking God's law was treason against the king. And here he gives them mercy by providing a way for them to ransom their lives. They could offer the lifeblood of a substitute animal in their place. The ransom lifeblood of Christ far exceeds that of any Levitical sacrifice. It's not the offender making the offering of a substitute. It is the very one who was offended offering himself as the substitute. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's grounded in the atonement. The call to holiness to us is grounded in the mercy and finished work of Christ on the cross. So that's what I have on chapter 17. Any comments? Questions? Yeah. I think it's along those lines we have to use what God's possessions as He wants us to. It also shows us the sanctity of life because some people might look at this and say oh this is so um, it's primitive and, mm-hmm. and bloody and uh, it's, it's not a very uh, good God or something like that Yeah. but it's really showing as opposed to other practices really in the importance of, of blood and the life and the atonement Yeah, very much so. And and the blood is merely a picture of the means of life. The concept is he's the author of life. So he controls how it's used, even for their wild game. What's the deal with having to cover it with dirt? What do you. I mean, it goes back to what he's created, right? It goes back to his. um, It's not left out in the open so that it might be defiled later. Um, you have a great statement on God being the, the author and controller of life and how we're to respect that. Um, anyway, anything else? All right. We, we, have, uh, we have sausage balls over here if anybody would like to eat those. It's all good. And, and, and I think they were prepared uh, properly. Um, so... <laughs> All right. <laughs> I don't. I don't think so, sausage would be kosher anyway. <laughs> Just to let you know. All right. Any anything else? Now let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Um, we thank you for your word. We thank you that once again you remind us that you are sovereign over us, and that all of life is precious, and we are to be um, protectors of life, 
uh, human uh, and, and animal, uh, frankly, that we should be kind to what you've created. Um, we, we pray that you would give us hearts that recognize that we are to be stewards of what is yours in all areas. And as we begin the Holiness Code, I pray, Father, that you give us hearts that are submitted to, um, to your rule, and that you are the great King, and that we honor you by the way we live, or we dishonor you by the way we live. And so we pray for lives and hearts that would honor you. Let us encourage one another in good stewardship of the great gift that you've given us in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.